This could certainly be a 10, 12-week series. There's really so much to say because the institution of marriage has been under such an assault from many quarters, this attack on God's design. I want to begin tonight reading from something that the sister of one of the early movers and shakers in the NOW organization, the National Organization for Women, shared in the 1960s, acting on and and following in what had begun really with the teachings of Hegel and Marx, and then among the philosophers of Europe in the early 20th century, and, and some even before, but Sartre being the most prominent, I suppose, of them, and teaching what now has manifested itself in the transgender movement, the idea that we're not born with an essence. We're not born with an essence of male or female. We're born and we just exist, and then we choose our essence. And that's what we now see in this transgender movement. But in reality, transgender, the whole idea of critical theory, feminism, all really are a part of one broader philosophy. And the purpose of this philosophy has been to destroy the family. Kate Millett was uh, one of the early feminist writers and influencers. They would have meetings in the late 60s, early 70s, as the National Organization for Women was being founded and established. And they would come to these meetings, and each meeting would begin with the leader of the meeting saying, why are we here today? And they would answer, to make revolution. What kind of revolution? The cultural revolution. And how do we make cultural revolution, she would ask. By destroying the American family, they would say. How do we destroy the family, she came back. By destroying the American patriarch. And how do we destroy the American patriarch? By taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy. How can we destroy monogamy? And they would answer by promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality. And this is exactly what they've done. This is the game plan they have followed. It's been around for nearly a hundred years, in the present form. How do we accomplish this? By destroying the family. This has been the objective. This is why the state has sought to take the place of parents as the teachers of children. This was the purpose of public schools initially. That doesn't mean everyone who comes out of a public school is going to be tainted forever. But that's how they're using it. And now, of course, we can see that's how they've been using the public schools as a way of indoctrination of children. So 
That really is the context for what we're looking at here in Ephesians, because we're now in this time where the assault on the family is now full-throated. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I think we could see pretty clearly last week when we looked at verses 22, 23, and 24 that what God has designed for the family has been rejected on a grand scale in the world today. So I'm going to read from verses 22 through 3. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Lord, we thank you for your design in marriage and in all things for this world that you have created. We thank you that you have taught us clearly of your will for the family. And Lord, we pray that we will gain understanding as we look into your word tonight, that you will teach us by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. In verse 21, if you look back a couple of verses, Paul wrote that people who have been filled by the Spirit of God will be marked by submission. And he was saying will be marked by submission as ordained by God as he sets forth the divine order in relationships. Beginning in verse 22, Paul turned to God's design for marriage and his instructions for husbands and wives. And last week, we saw that the wife who is filled by the Spirit of God will manifest that in her submission to her husband as her head, as head of the family. And it's important we understand as we go through the husband and wife relationship and that of parents and children and that of master and servant, there are responsibilities on both sides of all of these relationships. So he said, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. 
Now we find this same teaching in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and following, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, all the way to 1 Peter 3, 7. And we saw last week, and we know this, we, God's design for marriage is not popular in the world today. Certainly not popular for unbelievers. It's not all that popular among many who claim to be Christians, who don't like these verses, refuse to live by them. But Paul is very clear here. He's not vague in what he's saying to us. And marriage and family is the foundational unit of civilization. And there's an attempt to destroy the family and marriage. And it's well underway. But look what God says here, Genesis 2.22. Remember, God had said after six days of creation, He looked upon it and saw that it was good. And then He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. That's the one thing that's not good, He said. So the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which He had taken from the man, brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God makes the woman from the man and brings her to the man. And then he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this last part of this statement becomes important because Paul is going to quote from verse 24. He's going to quote it in its entirety before we're done tonight. And when Jesus came into the world, he affirmed these truths. He too quoted from Genesis 2.24. He quoted from Genesis 1.27. Male and female, God had made them. So, what we've seen to this point, husband and wife are not unequal, but their roles in marriage are different. And they are clearly defined by God. As no true believer would contest that Christ is the head of his church, Neither should any true believer deny that the husband is head of the wife. And it doesn't really matter what the National Organization of Women thinks. What matters is what God says, what God has designed. Refusal to abide by God's design and His command in marriage is evidence that the Spirit of God is not at work in a person. There's no clearer mark that One is submitted to Christ than a wife who willingly and joyfully submits to the authority of her husband and a husband who loves and protects and provides for his wife in a self-sacrificial way. We've seen that God's command that the wife submit to her husband is not conditional on his loving her, nor is his duty to love her conditional on her submitting to him. Neither of these are conditional. Tonight we turn specifically here to what God requires of husbands. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I said we have accounts of this teaching in Colossians. In Colossians 3.19, Paul teaches on this. There are ten words there on the duty of the husband. 1 Peter 3.7, 25 words on the duty of the husband to love his wife. Here in Ephesians, 116 words. So this is his most most lengthy treatment of this whole idea. Now what's love? 
Well, in the Greek culture and Greek language, there are different words for love. Some say as many as five, but we understand love, and, and the word usually is used in terms of romantic love. Eros, Cupid, all of that. That's not what God is talking about when he talks about love in the Bible. That's not biblical love. It's not sinful. It's just not biblical love. And then there's phileo, brotherly love. And it's the love of your brethren, love of the neighbor. He's talking about something else here. He's talking about a love that is a willing love. It's, it's of the will. You choose to do this. It will be accompanied by emotion. It's going to be manifested in actions. But this is a giving of oneself to another without regard to whether there's any merit in the one loved and without regard to any benefit to oneself. That's what Christ's love for us has been. The early feminist, Simone de Beauvoir, 1929 into the 1970s, and she said this, Love is something you can do with anyone for any reason, without fear, without restraint, and without obligation. What do you think? Is that biblical love? Without obligation? Without restraint? Of course not. But this is what is becoming the way the world views love. People love those who make them happy. That's not what God's talking about here. The love of the husband for his wife, Paul says, is to be molded after the love of Christ for his church. So did the church make Christ happy so he came and died for her? The church needed to be cleansed of her sin. That's why he came and died for her. For his church, he became a man. He left behind the glories of heaven. And he came and he suffered and he died. He loved his church, one writer said, not because she was lovable, but to make her lovable. If Christ could love those who hated him, that's all of us, and die for us, then Paul says the husband should love his wife unconditionally. Following the pattern of Christ, husband is called to a self-sacrificial giving of himself for the wife without regard to whether he thinks she's deserving of his love or not and without regard to whether it benefits him. In short, Christ lived and died for others, unlovable others, undeserving others. And so every husband is called to live for his wife, to protect her and to provide for her. This stands in stark contrast to the idea of marrying somebody because she makes me happy. He makes me happy. That's why people get married. It's a pretty good deal for me. He or she makes me happy. That's not what he's talking about. The defining characteristic of this love, agape, is self-sacrifice. And one writer says a husband's loving his wife in this way should evoke in her a wholehearted and willing desire to submit to him. And we know that doesn't always happen, but it should. Now, in verses 26, 27, and 28, Paul's going to continue this parallel of the love of Christ for his church as a model for husbands to follow. And here he speaks of the eternal purpose 
that God is accomplishing through and as a result of Christ's love for his church. All of salvation is about Christ's love for his church. He came and died for his church. I lay down my life for whom? For his sheep. I know we hear this, Christ died for everybody. Christ said, I died for my sheep. I'm going to give up my life for my sheep. Paul writes here, he loved his church and gave himself up for her. So here he says, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now I ask you, we look around the church today, is she without spot or wrinkle? Is she in all her glory right now? Is she holy and blameless? Well, we know the answer is, no, she's not. But this was the purpose. This is why he died. That's why he came. That's why he became a man. In order to cleanse his church. Normally, in Scripture, in the, in the letters of Paul, we read of Christ cleansing individuals. But now Paul's speaking of this cleansing and sanctifying on a corporate scale, on a church-wide scale. He came to cleanse her. Of what? Of the stain of that sin. By the washing of water with the Word. Second, in order to sanctify her. Third, that he might present the church to himself in all her glory. No spot, no wrinkle, but holy and blameless. So he came to redeem for himself an unblemished, holy bride. And if you're in Christ... One day you will be a member of this unblemished, holy bride. When the Lord presents the church to himself on his return, she will have no moral or spiritual stain at all. It'll be gone. So this analogy of the bride and Christ and the, and the husband and wife is very much one that we see throughout Scripture. John the Baptist talked about it. Christ talked about it, sometimes in parables. John 3.28, John the Baptist said this, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Mark 2.18 John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to Jesus, Why are John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fasting, but your disciples do not fast? What did Jesus say to them? He said, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So here's this picture. Very frequent. We saw it throughout the Old Testament as to Yahweh and the sons of Jacob. Here we are in Isaiah 54, verse 5. God says, For your husband is your maker. Now those are big words. Your creator is your husband whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer, Christ to come, 
is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And of course, in Revelation 19.7, we see this wonderful picture, the marriage feast. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Christ's bride consists of all of those chosen in him by the Father, in eternity past, before he created anything. And Christ came to the earth and died on the cross and gave himself up for her to redeem his bride from bondage to sin, from the penalty of its sin, to cleanse her of the guilt and stain of sin, to set her apart to himself, to make her holy and blameless. That's why he came. By his death on the cross, he accomplished all this, all of it. He accomplished the cleansing of his bride. He accomplished the removal of the stain of sin. And he sanctified her, set her apart to himself. This cleansing is applied to the individual members of the church by the Holy Spirit. It happens during our lifetime. Through the preaching and the hearing of the gospel. When the Holy Spirit regenerates a sinner, makes him spiritually alive. God declares him not guilty of his sin. During the time between Christ's ascension to heaven and his return, the members of the bride are being washed and are sanctified, set apart to him. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we read this in a number of contexts, but here we see this about the washing and the sanctifying work of God. He begins, Paul does, by saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes through this whole litany of sins who will not inherit the kingdom. And then he says, such were some of you, sinners, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is why he came. It's through proclamation of the gospel, the word that this regeneration by the Spirit and this metaphorical washing of the waters occurs. Now, Paul's spending a lot of time on this. It's because he wants us to understand what it is that the husband and wife are to reflect. And it's this, this beauty of of Christ's love for his church. Because as we read in verse 27, the bride is being made ready for the bridegroom. Christ gave himself up for his church that he might sanctify her. Sanctification. This word is used two different ways in the New Testament. It's a work of God in both instances. Sanctification in one sense occurred at the moment we were born again. We were set apart to God by himself. In another sense, sanctification is a lifelong process. It's ongoing by which God transforms the born-again believer to the likeness of Christ. When we see the beauty of what Christ is doing with believers and with His church, 
we can just start to begin to understand what marriage is supposed to be about. 1 Corinthians 1-2. True believers are those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. They've been set apart. They've been brought into union with Christ. They've been justified, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 6-11. And only here, as I said earlier, in all his letters does Paul focus on the corporate dimension of this cleansing and sanctifying work. He's talking about the church as a whole body, as a bride. So the eternal Son of God, here's his idea of love. Here's how he manifested love. Here's how he demonstrates his love. He left behind the glory of heaven, came into a fallen and sinful and corrupt world that rejected him to redeem those chosen in him by the Father, to rescue and cleanse people who didn't deserve it, so as to bring them into heavenly glory, undefiled, unblemished. This is what the Bible teaches. This is the express purpose for why Christ came into the world. He came to accomplish a specific purpose, and he did accomplish it. He didn't come here and die and go back to heaven and say, I hope somebody's going to believe in me. He came to save those he came to save, and he did accomplish what he came to do. And that work is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. What matters now for marriage is that Paul's reminding us here, he did all of this out of a motive of pure love. Not because it made him feel good. Not because it made him happy. Not because it made his life better. No, this is love in the godly sense. Self-sacrificial giving of himself without regard to benefit to himself and certainly without regard to the worthiness of the one loved. He came to cleanse his elect of their guilt and stain of sin. In light of this, Paul says, every husband is commanded by God to willingly and lovingly set aside all his lusts and desires and earthly, fleshly pleasures and to live for his wife. That's what marriage is by God's design. To live according to the ways of God himself, to manifest godliness, and to teach her the ways of God. Verse 28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, takes tender care of it, just as Christ also does the church. Why does he do this? Because we are members of his body, he says. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Verse 29. It's true that men seek to nourish and gratify the needs and desires of their own flesh. That's a given. But Paul is not saying to men, think of how much you love your own self, your own body, and now love your wife in the same way. That is not what he's saying. Paul never condoned self-love, nor did the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding husbands of something, that the husband and wife are now one flesh, a union, one body. And that's what Genesis 2.24 teaches. And Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 in verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In this age, 
People have forgotten, it seems. God's design is that the husband and wife now form a single unit. Yeah, they maintain their own personal characteristics, but they now form a single, indivisible unit. They're no longer separate entities. There's now one entity. They've been joined together by God. And how quick we are to just disregard that God has done something. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So what's Paul mean here? Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. What Paul is doing here is he's showing his readers that no sane man seeks to cause harm to himself. He seeks his own well-being. A husband must place the well-being of himself and his wife as a unity on equal or higher footing than on his own individual well-being. That's what Paul's saying. A man who places his own personal well-being and his own personal desires above the well-being of his wife and of his marriage is in disobedience to this command of God. And what this all boils down to is that a husband, all husbands must love their wives with a self-sacrificial love a love that is patterned after that of Christ for His church. And that certainly includes teaching their wives the things of God. Christ, Paul reminds us, nourishes and cherishes His church. Why does He do that? Well, Paul says, because we're members of His body. He feeds us. He takes care of us. He cares for us. Because we're members of his body. This word members, it's, it's an interesting word here, melos in Greek. It never speaks like of members of an organization. It always speaks of members of a single organism, like a lot of cells, all part of one thing. So we who've been joined to Christ are no less a part of his body then husband and wife are now one flesh. Now, if that is a little deep to drink in, Paul's going to say in the next verse, look, this is a mystery. But both Christ and His body and husband and wife are divinely ordained unions. We have reduced marriage to such a point where we say, he doesn't make me happy anymore. She doesn't make me happy anymore. So I'm leaving. I know this will sound strange. That's not why God designed marriage. He designed marriage to be a reflection of Christ and his church. And of course, for procreation. Not to see whether we're going to be happy. For how long will we be happy with this one? Then how long are we going to be happy with this one? All that is, of course, is self-indulgence. Self-gratification. So the parallel is this. Just as Christ nourishes and cherishes His body, how does He do that? How does He nourish and cherish us? His Word? His Spirit? His intercession with the Father for us? In all these ways, He nourishes us. And the husband is called to love and cherish and nourish his wife really using those same 
gifts. The Word of God should wash over a godly marriage. Spirit of God should be present. We should be being filled by the Spirit that we might respond in the way that God is calling us to. I don't know how much we think about it, but the bond between a husband and wife is stronger than any other human relationship, even stronger than that of parent and child. I mean, there's an intimacy between husband and wife that cannot properly exist between any other two people. They're one flesh. Therefore, God says, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife. Husband and wife are now one, joined together by God in mind, heart, purpose, and physically. They're one physically in this God-ordained sexual union. One writer said this, Each personality is enlarged by the inclusion of the other, ideally affecting the perfect blending of two separate lives into one. Continuity with the old personality is not broken, but the radical transformation resulting from the intimate personal encounter creates a new self. And when we realize that marriage is being placed by Paul here in the context of the love of Christ for his church, this is a love so deep, so self-sacrificing, that it's difficult to even fathom. But that's the context in which he puts marriage. And this helps us understand why all adultery, promiscuity, homosexuality, all of it is here condemned. Sexual union was created for this special God-ordained union. Well, if any of this has been a little difficult, Paul says, this mystery is great. Mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So what mystery is he talking about? Back in chapter 3, he talked about the mystery that had now been revealed that Jews and Gentiles are now one body in Christ, those who believe. So what's the mystery here? What's the content of the mystery here? Well, he's just cited Genesis 2.24 that husband and wife are one flesh. But now he says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So some see the the mystery being that husband and wife are one flesh. Some say it's that Christ and his church are in this divine relationship. And then there's a third view which sees Paul as summarizing all of this line of thought that's been running through this passage that says that the marriage of the wife and the husband is to be a reflection of the relationship of Christ and His church. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Now remember what a mystery is. A mystery is something that had been hidden by God. And a mystery revealed is something that is a, had been hidden by God, but is now revealed. Husband and wife are now one flesh. That was set down in Scripture 1,500 years before Paul wrote this letter though not perhaps fully understood. And what, what he's doing now is revealing what marriage really is to be. Unraveling the mystery again. In other words, Paul's applying those words of Genesis 2.24 to the mystery of the union of Christ and His church. One flesh, one body in Christ. 
Hendrickson says, every day the husband should ask himself, does my love for my wife reveal the marks of Christ's love for his church? And I do think that's what this passage boils down to for us. A truly Christian marriage will mirror the relationship between Christ and his church, no matter how out of fashion that is in the world today. Who are we trying to please? Christ or the world? Well, finally, in verse 33, in summary, Paul returns from mystery to a simple exhortation. Nevertheless, he says, whether it's a mystery or not, each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. In sum, marriage is the union of two individuals into one flesh. Therefore, it should never be divisive. It should always be a loving and harmonious relationship. And yes, there are going to be many trials, many mountains to climb. But in the end, submission and love will always be victorious. When a husband and wife follow God's design, their marriage will be harmonious. It will be loving. Wife's submission to her husband is not conditional on the husband's loving her. It's her duty to Christ. And in the same vein, the husband's loving his wife is not conditional on her submission to him. It's his duty to God. And in those truly born again, her submission and his loving care are enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, there's much more we could say. We could go on for weeks dealing with the pitfalls and the dangers. But we're going to stop there. And I just ask, Lord, that your Spirit would speak to us. Lord, that we would hear you. That this transforming work that you do in us would be at work in all marriages. Lord, that that especially within your church, marriage would be a thing that you look down upon and that it pleases you. You see what it is you desire to see. So Lord, I pray for strength for husbands and for wives and for understanding and acceptance of your design, your will for our lives. In Christ's name, amen.